Hey there, Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan listeners. This is Patrick from the Obsessed Network. I wanted to let you know that if you're loving this podcast, you might want to check out some of the other true crime shows we make. Shows like Crimes of the Centuries, hosted by the award-winning journalist Amber Hunt. Each episode is a deep dive into a true crime case that was huge when it happened, but has been lost to time. Rolling Stone just named Crimes of the Centuries one of the 10 best true crime podcasts of 2021. If you like something on the lighter side of true crime, check out True Crime Obsessed, where each week Jillian Pensavalli and I recap a true crime documentary that everyone is talking about. Hear our sassy take on everything from the Ted Bundy tapes to Lula Rich. And if you like investigative podcasts, check out Murder in Alliance, which has been hailed as one of the top true crime podcasts of the year. Over the course of 20 episodes, journalist Maggie Freeling and a team of private investigators looked into the 20-year-old murder murder of Yvonne Lane in Alliance, Ohio. And what they discovered led to the shocking twist that set the internet on fire in 2021. You can find all the shows we make wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information, find us at obsessednetwork.com. Okay, now to the show. How could 100 people vanish off the face of the earth without leaving a single trace? Were they attacked? Did they intentionally disappear? Did they not want to be found? Did a zombie virus get them? And why did no one really go looking for them until centuries later? Today, we'll learn about the fine line between being intrepid and being just plain stupid. We're about to go on a 400-year-old journey to try to figure out how a group of people could be someplace halfway around the world and then just disappear, leaving behind only a single cryptic clue. I'm your host, Daisy Egan, and this is Strange and Unexplained. Each week, I pick apart an event or phenomenon with my own brand of saltiness and usually end up hiding under the covers. Oh, to be alive in England in the 1500s. I'm not going to do a deep dive into it. There's plenty of podcasts that will tell you everything you need to know about England in the 1500s. But I will say this. Life was not great. There were yearly plagues. Yearly, as in every year. Because doctors had literally no idea what was going on inside the human body. There was no indoor plumbing. There was a literal profession for people who emptied chamber pots and cleaned out shit pits. I think they were called gong farmers. I'm not kidding. There were only a handful of acceptable jobs to have at the time, including one called a skinner, which is probably exactly what you think it is. You think your customer service job sucks? For amusement, people played a version of football that was basically lethal. And, like, in the moment lethal. No helmets, full contact over the stone streets. Like, I accidentally curb-stomped Billy trying to get the ball. Lethal. A really hot tour guide I had in the Highlands of Scotland once told me that parents would have their son's teeth intentionally pulled out because they were likely going to be knocked out playing this insane game anyway. In retrospect, I think he may have been making that up. Another 1500s pastime was getting together in a field and burning effigies. Fun. Theater wasn't even a thing yet, really. The first actual theater wasn't built until 1576, and people were like, mm, 
I don't get it. Shakespeare wasn't even a thing thing until 1585 when people were presumably like, well, it's either this or burn another effigy of that Protestant down the street. Wow, my English accent is spot on. Women weren't allowed to be actors, and men were only allowed if they had some kind of license from a wealthy person. I swear I'm not making this up, guys. Water was practically undrinkable, so everyone drank beer. Which, before you go saying that sounds awesome, it wasn't like your favorite microbrew. It was microbrewed in that usually a harried pregnant housewife with 12 children was in charge of brewing it, and milking the cows, and baking the daily bread, and preserving the meat and vegetables, and making the meals, and usually keeping her husband's books for his skinning business. Most women didn't get to just sit around weaving or needlepointing like all the paintings you've ever seen might suggest. And I'd imagine the women that did sit around doing that weren't, like, fulfilled. You know what I mean? But I guess those women got to drink someone else's microbrew, at least. In the 1500s, if you broke one of the many insane laws like not going to church on Sunday or eating eggs on Friday or having a vagina while acting, you didn't just go to jail. You were put in the stocks or the pillory. You know, that thing where they lock your head and wrists between planks of wood and subject you to public humiliation and any petty or horrendous torture your fellow man comes up with while passing you in the town square. Or you were drawn and quartered and then your severed limbs were put on display in the aforementioned town square. Or you were burned at the stake. It seems women in particular were most often burned at the stake. Sounds fun, no? Where today you might buy organic eggs and a bundle of flowers and listen to some mediocre jazz trio serenade your farmer's market. Back centuries ago, you had some drunk guy locked in the stocks getting his feet tickled while people shouted epithets at him. And there might also be a woman being burned in the corner. So, the 1500s in England was no walk in the park. That might explain how a handful of women agreed to get on a boat with their husbands and children to be the first Brits to colonize the so-called New World, which was only new in the sense that the Europeans had only just found out about it. You know, because they thought they'd literally fall off the planet if they sailed too far away. The Spanish discovered the Americas like the Beatles discovered rock and roll in that brown people were like, wait, we've known about this for like a while. In fact, we sort of made it. Anyway. In 1587, John White went to his wife and was like, so, um, listen, this dude, Sir Walter Raleigh, asked me to be the governor of a new colony. And his wife was probably like, oh my God, are you serious? That's incredible. Where's the colony? Like Scotland or something? And he was like, um... It's a little farther than Scotland. And she was probably like, okay, where? Like Italy? OMG, I love Mediterranean food. And he was like, okay, so hear me out. And then she was like, shit, John, is this a demotion? Somehow he convinced her to sail away, along with their pregnant daughter and her husband and about 115 others, to a faraway land. It's fair to ask why they would do all this to help England catch up on the colonization game? 
Spain already had a lock on South America, what with their tremendously successful campaign of plunder and murder, and England wanted to be a superpower. Was it patriotism that compelled these common English people to undergo this incredibly dangerous journey? Did they love queen and country that much? Side note, it's highly likely that these people were told that the New World was covered in gems and gold and a plethora of brown people who would feed them and do their work for them. I can't imagine they had any idea the true fate that awaited them. There were definitely some falsehoods shared about this new, undiscovered land, because the thing is, this undiscovered land wasn't even undiscovered to England. They were not, in fact, going to be the first Brits to colonize the New World. The truth was, two years earlier, the English had made their first attempt at colonizing the Americas, and it failed. Epically. Scouts had come upon what is now part of North Carolina, but which the English named Virginia after the Queen, whose name was actually Elizabeth, but she was supposedly a virgin, and so she was called the Virgin Queen, which just goes to show people can care so much about a woman's virginity that they'll literally name a whole colony after it. Trust, there has never been a time in history where people have not been fixated on the goings-on in the vaginas of powerful women. Again, I'm not going to deep dive into what all happened during this venture, but it's worth looking into because the English were awful to the Native people. Awful. Almost immediately upon arriving, they lost most of their food and supplies in a storm and went off in search of their neighbors. Basically, they demanded to be fed, murdered a local chief when they weren't fed, and were then completely abandoned by the resident tribes, left to fend for themselves, which they were obviously unable to do. Most of the colonizers in this trip died. A handful of the surviving people were left at Roanoke to defend the area, while the remaining hundred or so of the original 600 went back to England to be like, we don't know how to feed ourselves, we need more shit. Whether John White knew much about the previous settler situation, the poor land, their lack of skills, and their penchant for murder that could lead to an unhappy welcome upon his crew's arrival is unknown. John White might have lied, or someone lied to him about the fate of the people who went before, but whatever he told his wife, they decided to go for it. She must have looked around at her tiny house. Maybe she saw the severed limbs of vagrants hanging in the town square. The local gong farmer was busy cleaning out a nearby shit pit. She glanced down at the notice for a festive effigy burning that coming Sabbath, and she was like, whatever it is, it cannot be worse than this. And so, in April 1587, John White and 117 other Englanders boarded a ship and headed to the Americas to start a new life. The journey took three months. Remember how I described the 1500s in England? Now imagine what life would be like on a boat at that time. Now, this wasn't a luxury yacht. Sure, probably fewer effigies, but I'm thinking downgrade on almost all other fronts. I'm sure whatever these poor people had to sleep on was something like a wool mat. And don't forget, John White's daughter, Eleanor, was nearly six months pregnant when she boarded that boat. I'm going to go ahead and assume she didn't have prenatal vitamins. You know what I mean? She was probably still drinking beer. Dear God. 
So when the 118 intrepid Englanders landed in Roanoke, they did not find the outcropping of houses and the metal shop the previous colonists had built. Nor did they find the handful of colonists left behind to defend the area. The buildings and the people were all gone. All they found was one sun-bleached skeleton. He might as well have been holding a sign that said, this is a bad idea. Despite the literal harbinger of death that greeted them, White and his contingent decided to stay a while. They didn't actually want to settle at Roanoke, maybe because of the ominous pile of bones, but instead intended on scouting for better land, which, by the way, the first group had done to no avail. This part of the story makes no sense to me. Once you get past the access to water, soil for food, what exactly are you looking for if you consider, wrongly but with conviction, all this land is unclaimed and yours for the taking? Like, I get that a lot of the area was forest, but isn't that, like, good if your plan is to build a bunch of buildings out of wood? Is there a je ne sais quoi to land seizing that I don't know about? A vibe they were looking for? Maybe they wanted to go elsewhere because of the people who actually already lived there. But considering the general point of and track record with colonizing, I can't imagine the English were like, oh, wait, this is your spot? Our bad. Sorry, we'll go back and tell the queen this part is already taken. About 20 years after this, the English would land in India, and you can bet your ass they weren't like, wait, there's millions of people here already? Ah, nuts. Oh, well. Anyway, it just seems weird to me that they couldn't find any good spots for settling along the eastern seaboard. But there they went in search of the perfect new land. They looked and they looked and found nothing suitable and decided to stay at Roanoke for the time being, a.k.a. the one place that had been proven inhospitable. They began to rebuild the colony. Almost immediately, they were attacked by a local tribe. This was not the same tribe the first group of colonizers had fucked with, but maybe these people had put two and two together and thought, hey, pasty white folks get off a boat and we get smallpox. White and some of his men decided to retaliate, but as would be the case with racial profiling in the New World forevermore, they attacked a different tribe by mistake. What's strange about this is that White would later go on to paint watercolors showing scenes from various local tribes, meaning he was somehow able to distinguish them enough for paintings, but not for attacking. Anyway. About a month after landing in Roanoke in August 1587, under constant threat by the various local tribes the English had managed to antagonize in one way or another, Eleanor gave birth to her daughter, Virginia Dare, who has the somewhat dubious distinction of being the first white person born on the continent, and was also named after the queen's virginal status. Man, talk about the poetry of that name. This whole fucking excursion was a Virginia Dare. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Within a month of his granddaughter's birth, John White went back to England for more supplies. Guys, I think it's fair to say that the story thus far is full of strange, some would say very poor decisions on the part of John White. Like getting on a boat to sail halfway around the world with no true sense of what was on the other side. 
like having your daughter do that while six months pregnant, to not be freaked by the fact that the colony you expected to find is totally gone with only one set of bones to indicate someone was ever even there, to decide that's still a good place to lay down your roots. But then leaving your entire family right after getting there to go get more stuff? Like, why didn't they plan better? Bring more shit with you to begin with. Maybe like pack a backhoe or a wagon or something useful. Instead, White just dumps 100 people off and is like, hang tight, I'm gonna run out for a pack of cigarettes. A few months into the grand John White-led adventure, John White hops back on his boat, waves goodbye to his family and all these other people he's convinced to come to Roanoke, and sets sail for the homeland. There were complications upon his return, namely a war with Spain, and the fact that White's main investor, Sir Walter Raleigh, was like, meh, I've lost interest in the Americas, I'm going to Ireland instead. Thus, getting back became a much bigger challenge than anticipated. Dear listener, John White didn't get back with the supplies the colony needed, like really, really needed, until, wait for it, three years later. If White was expecting a hero's welcome, he was in for a shock. But also, if White was expecting a hero's welcome after he abandoned 100 people, including his family, including his newborn granddaughter on a land they were having trouble farming that was being constantly attacked and was essentially a textbook shit show of a situation, if White thought he'd have a grand return, he was a fucking idiot. Then again, he is potentially a guy who heard about a community almost entirely abandoned due to lack of supplies, ability to grow food, and murderous rampages against and by the local tribes, and said, sign me up. When White reached the shores of Roanoke again in 1590, there wasn't even a sun-bleached skeleton to greet him. Once again, the colony at Roanoke was completely abandoned. Completely. All the buildings were gone. Not destroyed, not burned. Gone. Like they had been carefully disassembled. There was no sign of struggle, no indication that anything violent had happened. Indeed, the only sign that humans had been there at all was the word crow carved into a nearby tree and Croatoan carved into the palisade that had been built around the settlement. White's colonists had agreed before they left that they would leave these clues in event that something happened to the colony and they were forced to abandon it. So White took this to mean the colonists had gone to Croatoan Island, about 50 miles south of Roanoke, home to the Croatoan tribe. Professor Mark Horton, who studied this case, describes the Croatoan as a, quote, friendly tribe. Now, I'm no anthropologist, but I would be willing to bet that most tribes were friendly. I'm friendly, too, until someone hands me a blanket covered in smallpox. Then I get a touch peeved. Maybe what he meant was that the Croatoan tribe was the one local tribe that white people hadn't yet killed members of, either inadvertently or advertently, and thus might take pity on their sad, starving faces. White tried to go looking for his people, but once again, bad luck in the form of a storm forced him back to England. When I first read that, I was like, why couldn't he just wait out the storm and go back when it was over? 
Turns out the people actually sailing the boat, because of course John White couldn't sail by himself, were like, um, bro, there's no one here and we're not going on some wild goose chase to find them. We're going home. And John White had no choice but to comply because he was an upper-class Englishman with no real knowledge of anything involving actual labor. Just the kind of guy you'd want to tap to build a new community on land with difficult soil and unhappy neighbors. As far as anyone knows, he never came back. He sort of faded from history. Either he spent the rest of his life drinking himself silly to forget that he would never know the fate of his wife, child, and grandchild that he abandoned in a completely unknown to him part of the world, or he was like, fuck it, and quickly got remarried and pretended like nothing happened. People were pretty used to everyone around them dying all the time back then anyway, so no judgment about that part. Plenty of judgment about going on the journey and then leaving his family there, but I'll give a pass on the guy surviving his pain however he did. More importantly, what happened to White's wife, Eleanor, the baby, and the 100 or so other people left at Roanoke? Even if they had been, I don't know, abducted by aliens, what about their entire settlement? Where the fuck did all of it go? This question has been asked in one circle or another for 400 years, but oddly, no one seemed worried enough at the time to actually go look for them. White sailors wouldn't even wait out the few hours of a storm in order to look for them. Only seven years later, the English would come back and successfully begin taking over the land in America with Jamestown, Virginia. One would think someone might have been like, let's go see if we can find our friends. Now, to be fair, I googled it, and from Jamestown to Roanoke Island is today about a three-hour drive, so it would be a journey. It wouldn't be a three months on a boat surrounded by lots of other smelly people hoping not to get sloshed by the shit pot on the next ocean swell journey, but it wouldn't be a walk in the park for the settlers to go looking for the Roanoke contingent. And considering how much we had antagonized the native people of that area— it wouldn't be a particularly safe walk in the park. But wouldn't you think that the mystery of where your countrymen disappeared to would be compelling enough to brave some danger? Where the hell did they go? So, various theories have been floated, of course, to answer the question behind the lost colony at Roanoke. In 1998, archaeologists studying weather patterns thought there may have been a drought that forced the colonists to flee Roanoke. Which strikes me as strange on two fronts. A, droughts don't just appear out of nowhere. Like, it usually takes a while before a drought really forces people to be like, shit, we are seriously out of water. If a drought really drove them out, there would have been signs of said drought for years. Were they really that unfamiliar with agriculture? Did they not see drought-stricken land and go, we can't grow shit here? And B, Did these archaeologists not think about, I don't know, excavating Roanoke Island to see if maybe there were, like, clues? Isn't that what archaeologists do? Also, if the colonists had to leave because of drought, you'd think they might have carved something other than crow into a tree. Like, maybe no water here had to go. And finally, there were some other folks who were surviving just fine off the land and really only had problems when the white people showed up and started alternating between begging for food or killing them. So, it's a no-go on the drought theory for me. 
Some people theorize that the Spanish invaded from their settlement in Florida and attacked them. But again, there was no sign of struggle or violence. Maybe these conquistadors were so charming that they were like, hey, listen, we have this really great settlement down south a ways. It's humid as fuck and there's alligators all over the place, but you can get a really nice tan. Why don't we all calmly disassemble your buildings, pack up your stuff and go? Okay. Then was Crow and Croatoan carved in the nearby landmarks a red herring? Maybe the Spanish were really just that good. Along those lines, there is a theory that the colonizers left Roanoke of their own volition, maybe tried integrating with other local tribes, and were then killed off by the Spanish. England was still a threat to Spain, after all. Others think it's possible they eventually tried sailing back for England and were lost at sea. This is certainly plausible. Maybe they were having so little luck growing food, and rather than deal with local tribes, they just headed home. I don't know if they had a spare boat that John White left behind, or if they would have had to build an entire boat from scratch. I guess if you want to get away badly enough, you'll figure out a way to build a boat. There must have been a spare boat. My favorite theory is that there was a zombie outbreak in Roanoke and that everyone ate each other. And before you scoff, this theory comes from the Zombie Research Society, which is a real website, so obviously it's reputable. According to the Zombie Research Society, some local tribes reported witnessing cannibalism at Roanoke and or mass infighting. By now, we all know that early colonists did occasionally resort to digging up corpses for food, and it's certainly not implausible that a hundred people living together in a colony stopped being polite and started getting real. And if they were all pretty much drunk all the time, it's not hard to imagine little tiffs becoming real drama. Did you hear what Mary said about you? Which Mary? Mary White, Mary Smith, or Mary Jones? Mary Smith. Which Mary Smith? The tall one. No, the other tall one. Yeah, she said your porridge is, like, really gross, and she'd rather eat, like, a boiled boot. Are you fucking kidding me? Oh, my God, I am going to go off on her. Trust me, when you're spending your days drinking beer after beer, you're either fighting with someone or asleep. The thing about zombies, though, is they don't eat bones. Everyone knows that. Incidentally, if you ever find yourself feeling hopeful for the future of this country, go to the Zombie Research Society website and scroll through the comments section. That'll set you right. The most plausible theory is that the colonizers at Roanoke successfully absorbed into local tribes. Maybe the most hot-headed ones of the group went back with John White to get supplies, and the ones that were left were like, look guys, we're cool. Those other dudes, those are those are some bad dudes, but we are super chill. Also, do you have any food? There is nothing hungrier than a mother and newborn baby. Maybe Eleanor used her baby with the local people in the way dudes use puppies to pick up women. Maybe she was like, oh my God, look how cute my baby is. Oh, you want to feed her? Oh my God, you want to feed me too? You guys, you're like so sweet. Can I bring some friends? Maybe they started migrating inland and behaved like actual civilized people and were welcomed into local communities. I really like this theory, but a lot of American history makes me think it's way too pleasant an option. And again, you'd think they could have left a little more info. 
A bunch of rocks shaped into an arrow pointing the way they went. A map carved into a tree. An animal hide with a note scratched into it. Went with Croatoans. They have food. Please don't follow. They could have been taken against their will. I suppose one could argue that in that case, the traces of violence could have been intentionally covered up. If anything, you'd think they would want to make it clear to anyone else who tries to invade that they're not welcome. Say by stringing up their body parts in the middle of town, or just leaving their bodies to rot. If they were attacked, it again begs the question of why Crow and Croatoan were carved into nearby landmarks. Did some white people do it to leave a clue as to who was attacking them? Did one tribe of locals try to frame another tribe of locals by carving their names? Also, were Crow and Croatoan native words, or were they English words? And if so, that's some next-level framing. If you learn how to point the finger at a different tribe in a language you don't know. More recently, excavation has been done at what is now Hatteras Island, formerly Croatoan Island, and indeed, 16th-century English artifacts have been found. A lot of them. That doesn't prove that the colonists went peacefully or went at all, but it is a fairly good indication that they were there. Research was thwarted this past year because of the plague. Some people claim that the descendants of the Croatoan tribe have English features. The people of the tribe itself remain relatively tight-lipped about it. I don't know whether or not modern-day Croatoan people believe their ancestors absorbed the wayward Brits. I just know they're not knocking on historians' doors to talk about it. And when they're asked, they're not particularly forthcoming. To be fair, 400 years is a long time to maintain a history of your people. Myths, rumors, theories, poor memories, misremembered stories, all these things contribute to uncertainties. Hell, our own culture can't remember our history well either. It took us until the 2000s, basically, to be like, uh, okay, maybe Christopher Columbus didn't exactly discover America. And even now, a lot of people will argue that point. So I doubt anyone really knows for sure if the English colonizers from 1587 died out or assimilated. A simple 23andMe might help solve the mystery once and for all, but there are some people who are, understandably, a little hesitant to mail their DNA off to God knows where. I could also imagine some people being like, um, you know what, I'd rather not know if I have colonizer blood in me, thank you very much. But it sure would be interesting to find out. Either way, the chances are the lost colony at Roanoke won't be lost for too much longer. Some kind of definitive-ish answer is bound to be found among the 16th century English coins and various knickknacks excavated on Hatteras Island. When that happens, this story will no longer be filed under unexplained. But unless we can figure out what motivated people 400 years ago to make a series of very weird and ill-advised, dare one say, stupid, decisions to occupy an unknown, faraway land with few supplies and fewer agricultural skills, the circumstances surrounding the lost colony at Roanoke will remain very, very strange.
We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me, edited by Claire Smith-Marish, and researched by Hallie Gray. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. Also, if you're enjoying our show, check out all of the Obsessed Network shows, including Crimes of the Century, a deep dive into historical crimes hosted by award-winning journalist Amber Hunt. Find Crimes of the Century wherever you get your podcasts.